the best-selling compliance handbook by compliance evangelist and compliance podcast network founder tom fox has been updated revised and improved in its new second edition this new podcast series will build upon the best nuts and bolts compliance handbook around to provide you the best information on implementing and enhancing a best practices compliance program Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of the Compliance Handbook. And today, I'm extraordinarily thrilled to have with me James Geller. James is the president and CEO of Rabbit Ratings. I've known James for, I don't know, uh, five or six years now. Uh, one of the, I think, most forward thinkers in compliance with an angle that every ABC compliance practitioner needs to hear. So, James, first of all, with an incredibly long-winded introduction, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Time with kind words like that, you can take as much time as you want. I appreciate it. So always good to be with you. James, could you give our audience a little appreciation of your professional background? Sure. Uh, I spent the first 10 years or so of my career as an investment banker, uh, working for uh, large multinational banks, focusing on risk, liability management, uh, capital markets, uh, helping raise capital for public and private companies from around the world and uh, sovereign entities and banks. And then I got into technology, uh, leaving banking to sort of follow the entrepreneurial spirit. And uh, I've uh, been for the last 20 years uh, working uh, in technology and information, uh, fintech, things like that. Uh, Rapid Ratings is the fourth company I've had the uh, honor of leading, and uh, for the last 20 years, been working very closely with my longtime business partner, uh, Douglas Cameron, who's uh, co one of the, uh, the two co-founders uh, here, along with me, with Dr. Patrick Caragata, who's the uh, originator and founder of the uh, original Rapid Rating system. So that really brings me to, to Rapid Ratings, and I was wondering, what is it you and your team saw and this is actually pre-08 financial crisis, which you, to make the acquisition to, which led to the company, which is today Rapid Ratings. Well, you know, back in, back in that time, there was a lot happening in the, the changes to the way information was digested and produced in and around Wall Street. And there was a lot of reliance on some really old companies and kind of the status quo of uh, relying on S&P and Moody's and for corporate risk done in Bradstreet. And each of those companies is over 100 years old. So there's a fair amount of kind of old way of doing things. And we definitely felt as though a newer, more technologically driven algorithmic approach to evaluating company risk was, uh, was ripe and there was a need in the market, not just among financial institutions, but among corporations as well. Uh, and then uh, we saw, we found rapid ratings uh, with uh, uh, with Patrick. Uh, he approached us and we saw a great opportunity to bring an innovative approach to the market for risk management. This is also, just keep in mind, at the, around the time that new uh, rating agency regulation was coming out in 2006, and the independent research market was really beginning and burgeoning and there was new legislative and regulatory focus uh, on Wall Street. So the timing really kind of came together quite nicely. Why did you or your team uh, decide that third party financial health is such a critical uh, tool for the risk management specialist? 
Well, financial risk is something that's been around for a long time, of course. And uh, historically, companies would uh, evaluate their counterparts, whether they were suppliers or vendors or, uh, or even customers, and would often do financial risk by looking at the payment history of those companies. And that's a really antiquated way of trying to get a perspective on a, on a counterparty business. And it really just looks at kind of one element of those companies, whether they pay on time. It doesn't look in depth at the uh, the pros and cons and the strengths and weaknesses, long-term and short-term of a business. So we were really keen to be able to bring something much more analytically rigorous and um, unbiased to, uh, to the marketplace. And third-party risk is something that uh, everybody faces if they're in business, and uh, the amount uh, the amount the amount of focus they put on it uh, always accrues to their benefit if they're able to uh, to do it in a systematic and a sophisticated way. When you began to uh, market ra market rapid ratings, did that message of uh, financial health third party financial health resonate, or was there a, an educational curve that you had to to basically take clients through? Yeah, it's interesting, Tom. I mean, there, there's a there's a mix of people out there. People who have been doing things in one way for a long time, and people who are um, sort of innovative and looking for new ways of approaching old problems. And that is today, as well as 10, 12 years ago. But we definitely found at that time that we needed to educate um, companies regardless of who we were talking to in the companies, that there was more that could be done in financial risk as opposed to kind of an old way of just checking some boxes and determining if a company was, uh, you know, again, paying its bills on time. And that was something that took us a while to, uh, to do. The early adopters of what we do uh, saw the opportunities for it. And then more and more, I think it became uh, more clear a little bit of network effect, and also more of a need to, uh, that people recognized to be able to look forward and see what the risks are of counterparties. So uh, I was trying to remember when I first came across you in Rapid Ratings. I think it was around 2014 or 2015, but I was really wanted to, to ask you about the evolution of the, the market. You talked about there were people who were a little more forward thinking or at least open to, to new ideas when you started. But uh, by 2015, you were up and running. You were on conference circuits that I was uh, intersecting with. And the message, I, I found your message incredibly powerful. But uh, by then had regulators actually perhaps caught up a little bit and saying this is something that companies need to have in their risk management portfolio or kind of where were you around 2015? So around 2015, uh, we were growing the fastest among corporations that were looking to manage supply chain risk and broadly speaking, third party risk, where we started to gain a lot of traction at that time as well was with banks doing essentially the same thing. And the regulatory environment for banks, third party risk really kicked into high gear in 2015. Uh, the uh, the OCC came out with regs uh, referred to as 2013-29, and in 2013 they came out saying all banks need to monitor on a continuous basis the risks of their critical third parties. 
it took a, took banks really a few years before they caught on that the OCC meant business, and uh, they really started to, to focus more on it then. But the regulatory environment for corporations and third-party risk has really been limited to a handful of industries, uh, defense, of course, being one, pharma being another. But for the most part, corporations aren't regulated to manage third-party risk. They do it because they're, they believe there's operational benefit and efficiency to doing it, which, of course, there is. But uh, the regulators still are pretty far away from third-party risk uh, outside of the banking world. One of the things that uh, I realized in, uh, early on in a conversation with with you and your team is that uh, I found this is just not simply about uh, financial risk in either third parties or, or even supply chain. It is one piece of data that a risk manager can use for a much wider variety of risk. And I've heard you use the example of cybersecurity. I've used the example of bribery and corruption. And I was wondering if you talk about how financial health uh, can be an indicia of a wide variety of problems or perhaps the opposite, uh, the lack of problems. Sure. Uh, you know, Tom, as, as you well know from your experience, the compliance world, the supply chain risk world, IT world, they have historically focused on the areas that they uh, have had principal responsibility for and not necessarily been integrated into looking at or communicating with the other areas in a company and the other risk domains and what they're responsible for. And the reason that's important in perspective historically is that finance and financial health is a great example of a risk area that historically may have been uh, its own domain and isolated or siloed for some people, the finance team or a finance person within supply chain to look at. But in reality, all of these risks are connected. And you take financial as probably the most foundational. A company that is weakening in financial health is one that is going to have problems in other areas that will probably be obvious before that company would actually fail and have to file for bankruptcy or have something that makes it recover. So a company that's weak or weakening is less likely to invest in the best cybersecurity programs. They may be less likely to invest in health and safety issues. They may cut corners in one place or another, which means quality control problems or delivery timing problems or in the, in the most egregious examples, bribery and corruption can occur at a company that is struggling. But companies that are doing well, that are strong, that can invest in their businesses are in many respects the best partners to have. So what we've seen change and uh, in, the, in, in the most sophisticated and evolved risk management programs is a recognition that our domain, financial uh, health, is one that can help define whether a supply chain or a third party vendor group is truly resilient and has the ability to grow with the business or is likely to present problems. And managing those risks and communicating the findings of the financial health to those other risk domain areas like compliance and, uh, and cybersecurity and IT risk, that's really, really important. And I think it's one of the biggest changes that we've seen over the last five to 10 years. James, you were one of the first people who introduced me to the term integrated risk management, but you've also used another term you were one of the first to use, which was third-party 
uh, ecosystem or third-party risk management ecosystem. And I was wondering if you can explain this broader perspective, perhaps how you came to it and why you think it's so important. Sure. You know, I've touched on it a bit in, in the last couple of comments, just recognizing that risk is, uh, is not one-dimensional. Risk domains are interconnected. And the companies inside of one's third-party group are part of the ecosystem that help that company be great or contribute to that company's weakness. And that's because companies aren't just buying from a set of other companies and selling to another set of companies. Businesses are part of a chain and they're part of a network and part of a, a grid of other businesses and those other businesses have their businesses to worry about and they are run by people who care very much about their companies and their employees and when you start to think about how all of these businesses connect you're talking about upstream and downstream a an environment of companies that have interdependence and have the opportunities to succeed together or to fail each other. And when you start to think about managing risk from that perspective, it opens up a lot of really fascinating opportunities. And the one that really jumps to mind for me is this concept of collaboration. And that transactional old way of thinking about things just meant you'd buy something from, you'd buy a part from a company you needed and you'd integrate it into whatever you're making and you'd sell it. And that was kind of simple, but uh, things are much more complicated now. And the more businesses can collaborate and communicate with each other, supply chain risk management, supplier collaboration, these are key elements to creating the strongest ecosystem and being able to benefit both sides of that equation. And that's where the, the concept of risk management ecosystem is really, really powerful. And not every company uh, adopts that or buys into it, but those who do are the ones who are building the most sustainable businesses and they're working with the strongest um, supply chains and third-party risk groups uh, that benefit their own companies for the long term, not just for you know short-term uh, intra-cycle periods. James, we've talked about how rapid ratings uh, educated the market and the customer base in many ways about uh, third-party risk management and third-party health, financial health, and you've talked about how regulations, uh, specifically out of the OCC, may have uh, nudged financial institutions along the way. But I wanted to ask. Uh, about the evolution of rapid ratings itself. Have you had customers come to you and say, James, we'd like to look at X, Y, and Z. Is there a different way you can package this? Are there different uh, ways for us to work with you or for rapid ratings to, to slice and dice things? Has that dialogue been ongoing as well? Sure, sure, from our earliest days. And probably the best example of that was kind of a, a classic entrepreneur's a moment where one of the largest companies in the world of, you know, call it a fortune 20, uh, that we uh, had not worked with yet approached us now close to 10 years ago 
and maybe nine. And they, uh, they called in and they said, we've got a problem. We need to evaluate private companies in our supply chain. We know you rate private companies and public companies, but what we need is help getting financial statements from those private companies to do any analysis on. Do you have a solution for that? And uh, I, I, always, I always think fondly back to that time because it was one of those moments where though we didn't, I had to think, do we want to do this? Can we do this? How would we do it? And I had to process all of that really fast before I said definitively, yes. <laughs> and immediately we began building out a team to uh, solicit private companies for their financials on behalf of our clients. And that company is still one of our largest clients. And we have now rated private companies by getting their financials for our clients from 140 countries. And we've probably done close to a quarter million private company ratings that way. And it is a foundation of our business. So that kind of thing has happened and continues to happen. Um, the current and, and going forward, one of the most interesting is our financial health rating network where private companies that we've rated want the ability to proactively send their ratings and give transparency to their customers and their suppliers. And we've just launched that uh, a year ago, the opportunity and the network and technology for them to be able to do that. So as the market grows and evolves, we've been expanding, but we need like all SaaS companies, all tech companies, we need to be agile in uh, seeing uh, the opportunities and catering to our client base in the market. That brings up a very interesting point, James. Do companies that uh, uh, vendors in the supply in a company supply chain that would uh, be subject to a rapid ratings uh, review and analysis, do those companies understand the market differentiator that can give them if they are uh, rated financially healthy in your system and uh, approved by their uh, companies as uh, vendors, they really see that as a, as a positive? Well, yeah, a, a lot of them do for sure. A lot of private companies still just resist any disclosure because they're private and it's not something they're accustomed to. To me, the most fascinating portion of that market though, Tom, is companies that actually aren't financially strong or don't have great financial health ratings. And ours is a zero to hundred score. So you know, the, the higher the rating, the, the stronger. What's interesting is that companies with lower ratings often benefit the most by being able to share their rating, whether they're proactively sharing it or whether their client, their customer is through us as an enterprise client of ours, uh, you know, getting the rating, is the fact that they can benefit from the open dialogue, the transparency and the collaboration. And there's a commercial value in that to the private companies. And the private companies along the way, they learn about themselves, they gain more financial literacy, they get insight into uh, what a, a major uh, buyer supply um, customer may want to understand about them. And so in many cases, it's the weaker companies that benefit the most because their client wants that transparency and that understanding. And once they have a dialogue, they can, uh, they can really uh, work together to solve problems or to understand how the company is evolving. So 
supply, uh, private companies are benefiting from being raided, many of them still resist and ultimately appreciate the value later as they go through the process and some immediately jump on board and are interested in doing it. But it's not just the strongest rated companies that benefit. Often it's the weakest. James, if I could turn now to the past year, and um, we're recording this in late April 2021. Hopefully we're entering a, a new phase of the, the pandemic where things might open up a little bit. But I was wondering how, if any, over the past uh, thir- now 13 months, has either your thinking changed or rapid ratings approach changed or even your business changed? So I think our business was well designed going into the crisis uh, because we had been highlighting the importance of all of these topics. You know, it's important to understand your counterparties, your suppliers, your third parties. And in fact, many of our clients were really well positioned because their supply chains were stronger because they'd been using us for a while. So they were less affected by COVID. Where COVID has affected our market probably the most is it has created more attention on supply chain and by extension, the third party risk world. And it is now a topic that's in the news every day. People understand it more tangibly than they did before. Boards and CEOs and CFOs are more focused on it, uh, much to the the, uh, the happiness of chief procurement officers who have been trying to get uh, their attention for a long time. And, uh, and also companies that were slower in adopting risk management programs because they were not nimble businesses, you know, large corporations with huge infrastructures, found that they had to adjust really fast to COVID. And because of that, they are now more agile and nimble than they were before and can now really implement new systems and technologies and processes for third-party risk management. So I think COVID will actually make supply chain risk management stronger going forward and more companies able to uh, to adopt techniques than uh, than we ever had before. And that will be a real nice silver lining to the crisis. Where do you see uh, companies headed or perhaps third-party risk management uh, headed into 2025 and beyond, James? So, you know, as we go forward, more companies will benefit from stronger ecosystem uh, creation and strengthening the ecosystems that they've got. But they need to embrace the importance of data and uh, digitization or digitalization of data they already have. And interestingly, we find that the companies that struggle the most to light up risk management programs are the ones that have the simplest problems. They don't have all of the data of their third parties in one place, or it isn't clean, it isn't updated. And as we go into the next few years, companies are going to need to spend a lot of time, money, and resources into the cleaning of the data that they have on their third parties, and then implementing systematic approaches to uh, managing those risks. And that means scalable infrastructures, embracing technology, uh, embracing predictive analytics, and whether that means building things themselves or using SaaS uh, or other 
uh, third parties like a rapid ratings to assist them in, in aspects of that risk management effort, that's going to be incredibly important. And it is the, the strongest companies are the ones that really understand that and are positioning themselves for it. And others aren't. The ones who are just talking about it uh, aren't going to get there. And they're going to be outpaced by their competition because their competition is just going to do a better job at it. And those who are taking it seriously are spending a lot of time and frankly, spending money to, uh, to get ahead of it and benefit from you know, the world post COVID, which you know, is going to extend out you know, three to five years uh, and the innovation cycle is uh, is a quick one. So they've got to get on board fast. They've got to adopt their processes and they have to get internal alignment that risk management is uh, is actually important and worth investing in. James, regulators keep expanding uh, the types of risk management that are needed. Just today, I saw the Biden administration is going to put out some sort of rules or regs around cybersecurity, but we've got uh, the anti-money laundering law of 2020, which was passed in the National Defense Authorization Act to try to uh, uh, help uh, fight anonymous shell corporations. Obviously, we have anti-corruption risk. Over the past year, we've had social justice risk. We've had diversity and inclusion now as a major topic. And and somehow in Q1 of 2021, ESG has just expanded. At some point in the future, will we just have risk? Well, that would put a lot of specialists out of jobs, which would which would bother which would bother a lot of them. Um, I, I don't think we move to a place where there's just risk, but I do think we move to a place where the risks of individual companies and of groups of companies are more easily evaluated on a portfolio basis and on a holistic basis. But not every company presents the same risks to its counterparties. And I think that's why specialization will still need to be around to some degree. But I totally agree with you. All of these different risk areas make it more complicated and daunting for uh, for businesses to light up uh, comprehensive risk management programs. Because just when you feel like you're getting a, uh, getting ahead of one, another one pops up, and it's a little bit of a whack-a-mole game. Uh, it's one of the reasons I'm actually very happy that we are in financial risk because financial risk is going to be there all the time, forever, uh, irrespective of which other ones are the you know, sort of risk area du jour. They're all important, but again, they're all interconnected and they're all fa- they all have uh, the financial health of their businesses as a foundational element for the risk and their ability and company's ability to invest in any of these areas. Uh, I found your comments on financial risk will always be their oppression. I was trying to think of the first example in the Old Testament where financial risk was raised, but it, you're definitely right. It's uh, It's been there for a long, long time, and it's going to be there going forward. James, we're near the end of our time, but I had a bonus question I wanted to ask you, uh, okay. which is you studied in Japan, and you have a Bachelor of Arts in Asian Studies. I wanted to ask, number one, what attracted you to this area? And then two, did any of that experience of either living overseas or immersing yourself in a foreign language and foreign culture help inform uh, any of your professional career? Well, well, first of all, I'm, I'm glad the, your bonus question wasn't a, a Bible trivia one or I would have been uh, ho- hopelessly outwitted. Uh, J- Japan, I can talk about. So 
you know, my getting into Japanese was because I really was fascinated by Japanese history and I had a language requirement in school. So I figured might as well, <laughs> might as well combine those things. And uh, anyone who has studied a foreign language and been dropped into that country probably has a similar experience to me, which is uh, a, a, an extended period of time of feeling incredibly clueless and uh, needing to adapt and empathize with uh with you know with with other people and kind of get get your feet underneath you and you know that was all stuff that i went through as a reasonably clueless uh, college student but when i uh, when i got into thinking about work i took my japanese effort and that went into japanese business uh, and that got my first job in banking uh so i learned about risk management and liability management and capital raising and the rating agencies. And that led to my career in tech and to FinTech and ultimately to rapid ratings. So there is a through line. It's a lot easier to uh, connect those dots retrospectively than at the time. I don't know that I would have mapped this out, but uh, part of being an entrepreneur, part of being a student, part of being a good business person, I think is having an idea where you want to go and then being able to adapt. And I'm fortunate, very, very fortunate that uh, I've been able to do that. And I've had an absolutely phenomenal uh, group of partners in Douglas and in Patrick and in the whole team at Rapid Ratings and, uh, and our client base that have embraced the kinds of things that we're doing. So I really do trace it all back to my interest in Japan and how I kind of got focused and interested in business. So. Uh, I, I really appreciate that question. James, unfortunately, now we are at the end, but I was wondering if any of our listeners wanted any more information on uh, some of the topics we've talked about and Rapid Ratings, where could they go? You can go to rapidratings.com and we have a wide variety of information on our site. We have a blog area with a lot of these topics uh, that are covered, plus many, many others and the ability to look at sample reports for the kinds of ratings that we produce and, and so forth. So uh, certainly would, uh, would offer that up for anyone who wants to learn more. Well, James, uh, I've really wanted to do this for a long time. I greatly appreciate you taking the time to visit with me today. Tom, it's great to be with you. Thank you. This is Tom Fox. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Compliance Handbook. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and tune in next week. Until then, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Thanks again, and I look forward to visiting with you again.